I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about the Ismailis and philosophy with Dr. Farhad Daftari, who is director of the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London. Hi, Dr. Daftari. Hello, Peter. Thank you very much for coming on the series. I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you. I said something in the last episode about who the Ismailis were and a little bit about their use of Greek philosophical sources, but I was wondering if you could just start by saying a bit about Ismailism and what differentiates Ismailism from other kinds of Islam. Okay. As you know, the Ismailis are one of the major Shi'i communities. As such, they were of the opinion that after the Prophet, the leadership of the Muslim Ummah or community belonged to his uh, cousin and son-in-law, Ali, whom they regard as their first spiritual leader or Imam. And furthermore, they held that this appointment had been sanctioned divinely. But then later on, the Shia themselves, they did not agree as to who were the rightful successors to Ali, especially after he was succeeded by two of his sons. On that basis, they became split into a number of groups and, and communities, each one actually recognizing a different line of imams who descended from Ali. One of the main communities which evolved during this early period of Islam were the so-called Imami Shi'is. And the Imami Shi'is in the year 765, on the death of their contemporary Imam, a very well-known figure and also a scholar, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, when he died in 765, his succession was disputed amongst his sons. One group followed his eldest son, who had been actually originally appointed as his successor. His name was Ismail. And those who now came to recognize Ismail and his descendants as their imams became known as the Ismailiyah, or Ismailis, named after Ismail. Whereas another group eventually evolved what is known today as the Esnashari, or the Twelver Shia. They followed Ismail's younger half-brother, Musa. And they're called Twelver Shiites are, because... They believe only in, in a line of 12 imams, uh, which ended in the occultation of the 12th Imam. And his Shia have continued to await his reappearance as the Mahdi before the end of time. Uh, can you just say something quickly about this idea of occultation? The, so the thought is that ideally the Imam is present and alive and available and is both a secular and religious ruler, but sometimes the Imam goes off into occultation is no longer available, but he's not dead. So where does this idea come from, and does it play a yes. part in Ismaili yes. thinking? All the various Shi'i groups and communities at one time or another have had this idea of uh, 
an a Mahdi Imam, an Imam who has gone into occultation uh, and uh, who would reappear in the imminent uh, future. But that the whole idea of Mahdiship itself, it actually evolved over time and it served various purposes. For instance, at times when a certain Imam had no progeny, he was regarded by his community as the Mahdi, as the Imam who had gone into occultation and would reappear. Sometimes when the circumstances were not right for the Imam to be active openly, he chose to go into a temporary concealment, which is quite you see, different from the type of occultation of the 12th Imam of the, of the 12ers. That was uh, an expedient measure, so to speak, to, uh, to protect the Imam under unfavorable conditions uh, and circumstances. You have explained to us the difference then between Ismaili Shiism and other types of Shiism, but just to make things even more complicated, there's more than one kind of Ismailism. Yes. Can you so quickly explain yes. why you get different strands of Ismaili Islam? Yes. The Ismailis were more or less a unified community until the year 1094. Most of these splits amongst the various Shi'i communities always revolved around the question of succession to an Imam. In that year, when the eighth Fatimid Caliph, who ruled from Cairo, he was a Fatimid Caliph, and at the same time, he was the Imam of the Ismailis. When he died in 1094, his succession was disputed between two of his sons, Bishnizar and Al-Mustali, and as a result, the entire Ismaili community also split into two rival factions named after these two sons, as Nizari and Mustalians. Uh, the Mustalians were in Egypt and they sort of recognized the later Fatimid caliphs as their imams, whereas uh, the Nizaris had their stronghold in Iran and uh, they really were consolidated under the initial efforts of a famous da'i or missionary by the name uh, of Hassan Sabba, who is well known in history. And uh, these two communities, of course, had different historical trajectories, but uh, the Mustalian Ismailis, who eventually found their stronghold in Yemen, and the Nizaris, who initially concentrated in Iran and then Syria and then much later in Central Asia and still much later in South Asia, both of these main communities of the Ismailis survived the downfall of the Fatimid Caliphate in 1171. Therefore, Ismailism has continued down to our times in its two forms. The Tayyibi Mustalian form in Yemen and then India where they are known as Boras and the Nizari Ismailis who are scattered today in, uh, in more than 25 countries of the world and they have had a continuous line of Imams. The present Imam, His Highness the Aga Khan is the 49th Imam in the series and the main regions of concentration of that branch of, of Ismailism in Central Asia, Afghanistan, South Asia, 
Iran, Syria, and since the early 1970s, also immigrants from East Africa and other parts of Africa to various Western countries. And politically speaking, the high point of secular power for the Ismailis has been the Fatimid Caliphate. Do you say that's but right? The Fatimid Caliphate, I wouldn't call it as, uh, I mean, I wouldn't use the word secular in this context because, as you know, it's very difficult to separate the religious from secular, although the two sort of domains have their own uh, sort of mandate and, and, and so on. But uh, the Fatimid caliphs were at the same time the Ismaili imams. And it was in fact in the person of the Fatimid caliph that the institution of the Ismaili dawah or mission and uh, head of the state, these two positions came together because the Fatimid caliph imam in fact was at the same time the head of the Fatimid state the Dolat or the state, and the government apparatus, and at the same time, the supreme spiritual leader of the Ismaili Dawah. And, and, and in that capacity, he articulated the religious policies of the mission, which was active also outside of the Fatimid state, and in, in fact had its most lasting and most significant success outside of the Fatimid state. And as a result, we see that Ismailism disappeared in Egypt on the downfall of the Fatimids, but it survived in the lands beyond the Fatimid state up until now. Maybe we can go on now to talking about the relationship between Ismailism and philosophy then. One of the striking things about Ismailism and their use of philosophical ideas is how much they drew on Hellenic sources, so sources that were originally Greek, and in particular Neoplatonic sources, for yes. example, the Arabic versions of Plotinus. And I'm wondering why you think they were so attracted to these texts in particular. For example, why did they go for Plotinus rather than, say, Aristotle or Aristotelian logic, which would have been seen as more primary by someone like Al-Farabi or the other Baghdad school, Peripatetics? The great translation movement, which really took off under the early Abbasids and uh, really reached the peak under Zimamun, the Muslims for the first time now came into contact with Arabic translations of a whole host of uh, Greek works from logic, medicine, and uh, also uh, metaphysics and the works which modern scholars uh, have called Neoplatonic, uh, together with the works of the great uh, masters like uh, Aristotle and Plato. These works in translation influenced a variety of Muslim scholars and thinkers. One should uh, count amongst the foremost people who were influenced by this new kind of knowledge were Ismaili authors of the Iranian lands, where Neoplatonism and other philosophical traditions became fashionable amongst the educated classes, amongst the elite of the society. Now, at the time, the Ismaili dais or missionaries, who were at the same time the scholars and the authors of the community, had adopted a particular policy of addressing their message 
to the educated strata of the society and to the elite. And in order to do that, they wanted to use the most intellectually uh, fashionable language and idioms available to them, and that was Neoplatonism, which had already become quite popular amongst the Muslims of Khorasan and other regions of Central Asia and Iran. But what one must always keep in mind that in trying to harmonize the Ismaili Shi'i theology with this type of philosophical tradition, they continue to remain theologians. Deep down, deep in, in their hearts, they would never consider themselves as part of the philosopher or the philosophers. They remain theologians, but they garb their theological message in this intellectually, you see, fashionable language in order to maximize the intellectual appeal of their message to the educated uh, elite and strata of the society without compromising their basic theological message, which revolved around the central Shi'i doctrine of the Imamat. That actually was the next thing I was going to ask you, because I think that's very interesting what you just said. So it's not so much that they selected Neoplatonism as a good match for Ismailism, yes. it's that the audience they were speaking to had already acquired an interest in Neoplatonism. Right, right, yes. But still, it seems to me like there is a good match between one central idea of Ismailism and Imamism in general and Neoplatonism, which is the idea that some souls achieve a kind of union with higher divine principles. So in the case of Neoplatonism, that would be the intellect. Uh, and this is what knowledge is. So most souls remain, as it were, down here in the physical world, trapped in sensation and imagination. But the souls who Plotinus uh, would consider to be philosophers achieve union with the intelligible world. And it, it is fair to say, isn't it, that the Ismailis are adapting that kind of epistemology yes, yes. to explain prophecy yes. and imamism. Yes. You know, in order to have a better appreciation of the Ismailis' appropriation and adoption of Neoplatonism and other philosophical traditions, is to really stop and look back and uh, to realize that from early on as a Shi'i community, the, the Ismailis were of the opinion that man, or uh, I would say humankind, cannot come to know God and cannot come to have access to the truths of religion through his act or intellect alone, and that he needed a guide. This was really the starting point of the Shia, and they furthermore held that the message of Islam, in fact, came from the sources which were beyond the comprehension of ordinary men, and hence the need for an imam or a spiritual guide. And this actually did fit rather well with the Neoplatonism, which they adopted. And in fact, but they, they did adopt that in a very creative manner to suit their own message, which was, in a sense, also connected to their cyclical view of history, which they had combined with their doctrine of Imamat. They believed that the sacred history of mankind would be consummated in seven eras, each era beginning with a speaker, a nautic, or a prophet, who would bring a new religious law. He would be succeeded by 
a legacy or a vasi and seven imams, the seventh imam of each era would rise in rank to become the natiq, the prophet of the following era. But the bottom line here is that in each era, including the era of Islam, whose prophet was Muhammad and then his wasi and immediate successor Ali and then the imams recognized by the Ismailis, these were the sole sources or wellsprings of wisdom. They were the ones who were qualified to interpret the religious message of that era to the rank and file. So in the era of Islam, the people who had that knowledge were, course, after the Prophet and Ali were the Imams recognized by the Ismailis, and they were the ones uh, whose guidance would also provide the believers with the sort of knowledge which they needed in order to, to purify their souls and acquire salvation. This idea that they have that humankind requires a guide, uh, not just the Prophet, but also Ali following the Prophet Muhammad and then the Imams, what is their argument for this? Because this is a position that was attacked by philosophical thinkers, for mm. example, um, Abu Bakr al-Razi and al-Ghazali, two people who yeah. aren't usually put in the same mm. class together, but they both mm. accuse the Ismailis of what's called taklid, mm. which is uncritical acceptance of authority, mm. basically. Mm. And it seems like the Ismailis are making a very bold epistemological claim here, which is that for most of us, so everyone other than one of these imams or prophets, um, it's impossible to achieve knowledge on one on one's own. So one needs a, an external guide. Do they have any kind of argument for convincing us of that? Well, from our vantage point today, it's difficult to perhaps fully understand the situation of the early Muslims and the early Shia, which provided the milieu in which this doctrine was actually articulated. At the time, they were thinking of a particular type of religious knowledge, which was not available to everybody. That religious knowledge was possessed by the Prophet, and as part of, of his heritage, had been passed on to Ali and then to the Imams who were from the progeny of Ali. This was a type of divinely sanctioned knowledge. It was not, for instance, a knowledge of a type that one would acquire by enrolling in a course today. It was a very special type, and we should really make a distinction between that type of religious knowledge or elm, which is really the focal point of the doctrine of imamat, which is passed on from imam to imam. So it's, the idea isn't that you couldn't learn the rules of geometry you, without consulting an imam. It's that there's this specific exactly, kind of knowledge. Exactly, which, which, which mankind needs for its spiritual guidance. But then, I guess, even then, it seems like a philosopher might object to that and say that, without an argument to this effect, there's no reason to think that there's any kind of knowledge which is absolutely crucial for us to acquire that we yes. can't achieve just using reason. And in fact... There are alternative views in the context, right? So the Mu'tazila arguably think that reason is uh, adequate to achieve 
understanding of the most important truths of Islam yes. and his agreement with Islam. Yes. And certainly that seems to be the position of numerous philosophers, including Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi. Yes. Um, so what would the Ismailis say against that sort of view? The Ismailis would say what every other Shi'i or every member of any other Shi'i group would say. That, as I just tried to explain, we are not here talking about an ordinary type of knowledge. This is a type of knowledge which is the prerogative of the Ahlul Bayt, the people of the house, of the members of the Prophet's family. And it's by the membership in the family, in a sense, it's through that channel that they, in fact, inherit this knowledge. It's not a knowledge that can be acquired and through education or election. And this is why they did not agree with the, with the way the, uh, the bulk of uh, the Muslim community at the time, later known as the Sunnis, came to elect a successor to the Prophet. So is maybe the idea then is just that it's not the sort of knowledge that anyone could have just no. by recourse to reason because it's too... Um, particular or contingent, right? Exactly. So if it's if, of a very, very special kind, really. And so, I mean, just to take an example, um, you wouldn't be able to use reason to know that you should pray five times a day facing Mecca, no, right? Because no, it's not the sort of no, thing reason could no, ever discover no, by itself. No, no. So you have to a prophet. But of course, the, uh, it's also uh, implied by the doctrine of the imamat that each imam, each imam of the time should interpret the religious edicts, prohibitions, and commandments, and, and so on, according to the changing circumstances of the time. Which is one reason why you need continued yes, guidance. Yes, so this built-in sort of mechanism for progress is really embedded in the very doctrine of Imamat. It's not a rigid, frozen type of you know, institution. So I suppose that from a Shi'i point of view, they would accuse Sunnis of always having to go back to just the exactly. text of the Quran and the Hadith. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And so you would have no way of adapting the religious teaching for... The Sunnis, in fact, may continue to use the fatwas of the dead scholars, but the Shia do not believe in that. So it's like a continuous living revelation it's a continuous, all the time. It's a living imam. It's a living imam, the present imam, particularly for the Ismailis who is the foundation of the knowledge and the source of the guidance in every age. And his, uh, his authority, his teaching authority, his guidance authority, in a sense, is independent of the authority of the previous imams. That seems, though, to bring us to a problem, and this is, I guess, the last thing I'd like to ask you about, which is that also the Ismailis and other Shis get themselves into a similar situation, right? Because if the imam is in occultation, and you have no access to the imam, then in fact you don't have this access to living revelation. Yes, so that, you, don't you wind up back in the same situation? That has happened. That has happened. In, in fact, that has happened for the 12 Shi'is since the, since the time of the occultation of their 12th imam in the year 874. And for the other branch of the Ismailis who do not recognize the Aga Khan as their imam, the succession of the imams, they all have remained in concealment since the year 1130. Now, and in the absence of their imams, the Tayyibi Ismailis have been led by Dais, or sort of supreme leaders, but 
absolute power. And gradually, in all but name, these dice have taken over the functions and the attributes of the imams. And to a large extent, the mujtahids, or the religious leaders and scholars of the Torah community, gradually have also appropriated the various functions that were sort of reserved only for the imams of that community. This is almost like you start with the Prophet Muhammad and then you have as a successor Ali, and yes. then after the death of Ali you have imams, and then when the imams are in Al-Qutash and you have da'is, but there's always someone to lead yes. the community. Yes. And so you're never, as it were, um, a, the community is never abandoned and on their own. The, you on know, I one of the early hadiths of the, of the Shi community goes this way, that it's so important at all times to have an imam that the earth, because he, he is the proof of God on earth. The imam is the proof of God on earth, and the earth can never be without an imam. It goes on to say that even if two men were left on the face of the earth, one of them had to be the imam. <laughs> so <laughs> the presence of the imam on earth is that important. Now, whether he's a manifest imam or an imam in hiding, that's, of course, a different matter. Well, that seems like a good note to end on. Uh, next time, I'll actually be looking at the Sunni side of the story to some extent, because I'll be speaking about Asharism, which becomes a dominant form of theology or kalam in the Sunni tradition as the centuries roll forward. For now, I will thank Farhad Daftari very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. And please join me next time when I will be talking about Asharism, here on The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Hey.